0: Welcome everyone to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us, but... Before we get into that, I want to remind you all once again to sign up for our mailing list because when we lost our Instagram, we lost contact with you all and we don't want that to happen again. So make sure you're signing up for the mailing list. It is a direct way to find out when we get uh, new episodes uploaded or any other um, content coming your way. So make sure to go do so on our website, www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new Enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. All right. So, today with us, we have Dr. Beth Freight. So, inspired at age 18 by her own father's struggles with health, she decided to pursue medicine um, and eventually pursued physical medicine rehab, which is a specialty that I'm also going into. So, she attended Harvard for uh, undergrad, went to Stanford for medical school, went back to Harvard for residency in physical medicine rehab, where she focused on uh, stroke and an emphasis on stroke prevention due to her father's health struggles. Um, Since then, she's accomplished a lot, like a lot, a lot. Um And she's also become a faculty at Harvard, developed and taught a class on lifestyle medicine, and eventually has been elected uh, president-elect right now of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine since August of 2020. There's so many other things that she's done um, that I'm not going to mention in this brief intro. So we'll let her highlight some of the things that she wants to later on. But first, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. It's an honor
0: No, the honor is completely ours. So um, from that intro, is there anything in particular you really want the listeners to like highlight about yourself?
1: Not really. I'd love to dive into some material that you think might be helpful for people and go from there. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, no worries. Sure. So the first question is um, lifestyle medicine is kind of a unique field within medicine itself. So kind of how did you find out about it? Why did you decide to go into it? And why do you do what you do?
1: My God, that's a great question, and it wasn't planned. In fact, I knew, as you said, since the age of 18, that I wanted to help people lead healthy lives. I really wanted to help people prevent heart attack and stroke specifically. Heart attacks are number one killer. It has been for many years. So for me... I wanted to become a physician, but wasn't clear as to what specialty would be best. I looked into cardiology, primary care, and it wasn't until my fourth year in medical school that I decided physical medicine rehab was for me for a number of reasons. One, I felt that its emphasis actually on exercise as treatment with physical therapy was critical. And I Also enjoyed the psychology of medicine and recovery. So this allowed me to pursue interests. In psychology, in nutrition, in exercise, that I didn't feel were available to me with other specialties. Now, that's at that time. Remember, this was 1995 or so when I'm making this decision. In fact, if there were a specialty called preventive medicine or lifestyle medicine, I would have gone into that. History tells us there was a specialty at that time, preventive medicine, sort of a subspecialty actually of Mm -hmm. internal medicine. However, if you look back at history, you'll see it was mostly epidemiology. And that really wasn't where my calling was. My calling was in one-on-one counseling and helping people feel empowered, engaged and motivated to take care of themselves. That was my true calling. So going into rehab, physical medicine and rehabilitation, and as you know, that's a broad specialty. You know this because you're going in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But maybe your listeners don't know exactly. So it's trauma to the central nervous system. So stroke, spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury, and also trauma to the musculoskeletal system. So amputation, back pain, shoulder pain, and Really, the specialty breaks up into two areas, those that focus in on central nervous system, those that focus in on musculoskeletal, almost more sports medicine. So for me, it was all that stroke, as you mentioned. And when I finished my residency, I shortly thereafter did some research about stroke patients. I wondered if they knew what kind of stroke they had. Uh, There are two types of strokes, uh, hemorrhage and infarct, so a bleed or a clot. And I wondered if they knew what kind of stroke they had. I wondered if they knew what they were going to do to prevent a stroke, if they knew their etiology of stroke, if they knew why they had the stroke. And I wondered this because they would be at Mass General for about a week and then with us at Spalding Rehab Hospital for about four weeks. That's back in the late 90s when we had these longer stays. And I thought, okay, we've been seeing these patients as physicians, as nurses, as PTs, as OTs, as dietitians, as social workers, as therapists. We've all been seeing these patients for weeks. At the end, upon discharge, when we ask, what kind of stroke did you have? What caused it? What will you do to prevent it? Only 50% could answer these questions. So to me, this represented a gap that needed to be filled. And I thought a lot about it. And I, at that time in my career, thought, well, they aren't ready for the information. It's very stressful in the hospital When my dad was going through this, it wasn't me, it was him of course, but even the family members are so anxious about it, about the recovery and about what happened. It's really jarring. So I thought, okay, they need to take the information home. So I wrote a book with some colleagues at Spalding called um, stroke, how to prevent a stroke and recover fully. So that was really my entree into a deep dive into the power of nutrition, power of exercise, power of stress, resiliency. That was on my own after residency. And I wrote that book, co-authored it. And one of my colleagues here, another physiatrist, Dr. Eddie Phillips, he was an attending when I was a resident. And I was at a department party, a department alumni gathering And he knew I wrote the book and he had looked at it. And he said to me, you know, Beth, you know what you're doing. I said, I'm trying to help people lead healthy lives. I try to help people prevent stroke. I'm no, no, you're doing lifestyle medicine. This was in 2008. I'd never heard of the term. He said, you're doing lifestyle medicine. I said, really? That sounds great. I'm glad I'm doing it. What is it? (laughs) And and he said, well, it's exactly what you're doing for stroke patients, but it's for everyone because what you're recommending for stroke patients is actually what we all need to do. And at that moment, he and I partnered and we started the Harvard Institute of Lifestyle Medicine together, creating CME courses. You know what that is. I don't know if all your listeners do continuing medical education courses, CME courses. So we need to have a hundred hours every two years as physicians to continue learning and staying up to date. So we take these CME courses. So we created in 2008, some of the very first CME courses in lifestyle medicine. Now the American college of lifestyle medicine came to fruition in 2004 Interestingly, if you know the research and the landmark studies, there was a study by Mokdad and colleagues that was published in one of our premier medical journals that talked about actual causes of death, not just the diseases that were causing death, which I mentioned, heart disease, cancer, mm-hmm. stroke. But actually the behaviors behind those diseases, and that came out in 2004 with a big with a big splash. And the Behaviors, you probably can guess and your listeners could guess. Tobacco use, poor diet, physical inactivity, alcohol consumption. These were the top noted in 2004. So fast forward a bit and we are at the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine. We're doing CME courses in lifestyle medicine that focused on exercise, nutrition, stress resiliency with We have Herb Benson here, the Benson Henry Institute here in Boston, and we also uh, started on sleep and sleep hygiene um, and, and focused in on these main pillars. Now, the six pillars of lifestyle medicine also include social connection, substance use, elimination, or moderation, depending. So that's how we got into it. And once I got into it in 2008, there was no turning back.
0: No looking back.
1: <laughs> no, no. This, was, this, this felt like this was what I was put on this earth to do. This is wa- This was my calling. This was my passion, my purpose, and it finally had a name. I'd been doing it, right, since 18. My, my senior thesis mm-hmm. was on mental stress and its impact on the heart. So we looked at EKGs after people did serial seven subtractions, and we looked at the EKG to see if it showed any signs of ischemia or, or lack of oxygenation. So really since 18, this has been my passion, but now it has a name. And, um, and the American College of Lifestyle Medicine has really helped move this lifestyle medicine movement forward nationally as well as internationally. So we have... 5,000 members now. We're the fastest growing medical college uh, at the moment. Um, But it makes sense because especially with COVID, where people are stuck at home, drinking more, sleeping less, stressing more, eating, stress eating, Mm -hmm. everything turned upside down. And some of the things I was working on social connection many years ago, talking about the power of social connection, the landmark studies that were done in 1979, published in the literature, in the medical literature in 1979. It's now in 2021 where everybody's embracing this important part of lifestyle, social connection. So I hope that answers some of the question.
0: No, it definitely answers the question and more. And I just want to say, I can hear the passion, and enthusiasm in your voice and just going through that story. It's absolutely incredible kind of how you came to it. It's always interesting to me when you hear about how people find their calling and like really find their purpose of what they want to do in life. Because when you hear that kind of story, it's just like the energy is always there. So I definitely felt that. So that's incredible to hear. Um, and I also want to share that when I started my rotations as a third year, I was actually on a neuro, uh, neurology rotation first. And... um I've always been into preventive medicine, as our listeners might have heard our episodes with Jason and I, where we talked about our histories. So um, I looked up like the risk factors for stroke. And obviously, we can't always prevent things, but you look up like risk factors to try to reduce as much risk as you can. And I forget the exact numbers now because this was forever ago now, (laughs) not that long ago, but in my mind, forever. the risk factor for a second stroke, it was really high if you had already had a previous stroke. And many of these patients didn't know it. So, I actually spent time during that rotation um, talking to these patients about their risk factors. And that was something that we did do on the rotation. Thankfully, I had an excellent attending who did discuss that. But I found that it was always just like a kind of a shorter discussion where I, as a med student, had more time. So I would go in afterwards and talk a little bit more about the risk factors, not necessarily giving them information because I didn't think I was in my place to do that as a third year, but kind of asking probing questions and kind of getting to understand what they know about it. Um, So that's excellent that you shared that. Um, Sounds like we have something in common right there. Um, so, when it comes to preventive medicine, um, you mentioned that it wasn't necessarily a specialty at that point. And now, obviously, it is. I don't know how much it's transferred away from epidemiology, and it kind of encompasses a lot. So, I want to ask you, from your perspective, what does preventive medicine mean to you?
1: Yes. Great question. And the field has transformed. And I believe at its foundation now truly is lifestyle medicine. In fact, American College of Lifestyle Medicine and American College of Preventive Medicine work very closely hand in hand and have been creating curriculum on lifestyle medicine together. So preventive medicine does lifestyle medicine at its core for sure. It also works in public health and a little more in the epidemiology realm. So it, it, I understand it to be lifestyle medicine at the core, and some physicians will be practicing lifestyle medicine one-on-one in groups, and that will be their practice in preventive medicine. And others may be in public health and working to change public policy or occupational health, there are different ways to practice preventive medicine, and the boards are a little bit different, broad. They're broader than the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine, in that really the focus here in lifestyle medicine is exercise prescription, nutrition prescription, sleep prescription prescription. Stress resiliency prescriptions, social connection prescriptions, and then looking at the substances. So that's really the core, using these six pillars to treat, prevent, and in some cases, reverse with diabetes, reverse these conditions that we call chronic conditions, right? They're chronic. This is how they're labeled chronic conditions. But we here in preventive medicine and lifestyle medicine are working to reverse what we can with lifestyle. So I feel that we are absolutely teammates, parallel. And I got in a lifestyle medicine, as I told you with my story, I could have easily gotten into the preventive medicine world and, and, and gone that route as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And just maybe for a little bit of clarification, I know our listeners uh, are familiar with like medical school residency, but not m- might not be as familiar with like the American Colleges of like various specialties and whatnot. So, can you kind of describe a little bit exactly what the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is? Is it like yes. a separate residency or a program that people go into, or what is it?
1: Right, that I could see that that could be an area of confusion, especially with its name, American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So. Mm-hmm. Different medical specialties, subspecialties areas have colleges and it isn't a university or a, a place where you get formal education with a degree. You can get education in online courses, in live courses, mostly for continuing education, either in continuing medical education or continuing nursing education or coaching education. Uh, And the colleges in the medical specialties, so the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, American College of Preventive Medicine, American College of Radiology, there's a lot of different ones. It allows practicing physicians to come together annually. We used to come together live in person before COVID and mm-hmm. and talk about the latest updates in the area. In ours, it would be latest updates in nutrition and exercise. And we would also be able to meet and share what we were doing clinically, share the research that we had participated in or research that we'd reviewed and wanted to wanted to let our colleagues know about. And these colleges allow people from different states, different countries to come together, collaborate, share, reach higher ground together. Because if we all stay in our little silos, so if I just stay at, at Harvard and stay in Boston, which I did, by the way, <laughs> for a number of years, mm-hmm. I. I I was in this field probably for six years before I branched out. That's really what these colleges, these organizations that encourage community for practitioners that are like-minded, because I want to mention specifically American College of Lifestyle Medicine, it's not just for physicians, it's for therapists. It's for coaches. It's for nurses. It's for nurse practitioners. It's for physical therapists, occupational therapists, psychiatrists. It's for, it's for a broad num, a broad range of practitioners, people practicing healthcare. Um, and, and, and the whole idea of these colleges is again, to, to bring community, bring people together, create bonds, create opportunities and, and also, especially how I view it with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, share, share, share what you've done. Most of us want to do the work we do for the greater good. That's, that's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. So when I was in my silo at Harvard, I was doing my works. I was teaching classes. I was doing some research and... I thought to myself, I have a whole syllabus now, a 14-week course in lifestyle medicine that I was asked to teach at the Harvard Extension School. I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and hours and hours into creating this course, 14 PowerPoints with 120 slides each. Hmm. And I thought, well... There's other people that are going to want to teach this also. So the first thing I did was, well, join the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, learn what other people were doing, what was already out there, and then see where I could add value. Where could what I've done over the years help others? And it was sharing the syllabus. So I got into the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, shared the syllabus, and then I put my whole course together into a book. Called the Lifestyle Medicine Handbook. I don't get any proceeds from this book. They all go to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. But this is basically the textbook to that course that I had taught in lifestyle medicine. So I collaborated with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. They reviewed the book. I co authored it with some colleagues from there that I had met. They were from not from Boston, from various places, and then lastly, most recently, I thought we've got the syllabus, we got the book. I have the powerpoints. Why don't I give them away? How could I give them away? I'm just one person. I, I don't. Ha- I don't have a, a you know huge staff. So mm-hmm. I collaborated again with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and they reviewed all the powerpoints. We updated them. They t- made them into a pretty template with the ACLM logo at. At any rate, after a year of working with them, they're now available free. You go to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. If you're a member, you download all these PowerPoints, 120 times 14, and you can use them to teach college courses, to teach your community. And to me, that's what these colleges represent. They represent opportunities to collaborate, opportunities to share, because if we keep reinventing the wheel, so people are trying to teach lifestyle medicine. If everyone just starts from square one and they're starting with their first PowerPoint, showing them the landmark study of mock dad and college I'm not that I shared up. with you, right? So they're all then they didn't then they, they have to create another one, another one all the time to put 120 slides together. Why not just use mine, build off it? Sure, change it and add to it and make it better, but at least start with the with the wheel. So these colleges give us opportunities to share, and as I mentioned, reach higher ground together. Because when we share and we work together and it's teamwork with, with multiple medical schools and health professional schools, we're all coming together. We can really make a difference.
0: Definitely. And I think one of the reservations that some people might have about joining something like a American College of Lifestyle Medicine is that when you think about it from like maybe a residence or an attendings perspective, it's that they're teaching nutrition, exercise, and like all of that kind of stuff that goes along with lifestyle medicine, correct? Like the sleep um, and the stress resiliency. And one of the reservations could be that I can learn all of this online. Like if I do one Google search, then I can find out so many articles on nutrition, so many articles on how to work out properly. And there's always just like differing opinions when it comes to that. So, um, why what would be the incentive other than like that sense of community for a resident or a physician to kind of join the uh, American College of Lifestyle Medicine?
1: Yes, it is a great place to meet rigorous academic colleagues that are evaluating all these different research articles that are coming out. So for example, we have Dean Ornish here at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine who has been a pioneer in this research for years. And When he presents the latest research on nutrition or uh, cardiac prevention programs, we know that this has been vetted carefully by one of our greatest minds in lifestyle medicine. So when when you are going to the conferences at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, you are working with people who are evidence-based, who have reviewed the literature in great detail and who are able to present it with some perspective. Sometimes you're right. You, you, you can do a Google search and find a lot of different materials. And there's a lot of contradictory opinions, especially in the area of nutrition. And we have Dr. David Katz. He was a former president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. He's now become a colleague and, and good friend and collaborator on various projects. and. I really think his way of approaching nutrition, which is evidence-based, is very helpful. Look at all these different diets. This is what he does. Ah, About every five years, he'll review all the different diets. The last one was in 2015. So he's due for another. And what are the health-promoting aspects of all of these different diets that have different names? And he'll find all the health-promoting aspects. And then I'll say, "Okay, so what's common among them? huh, (laughs) unprocessed foods, limit sugar, limit trans fats, eat the whole food. Um, uh, and, and, And he'll put together what are the basic tenets that you need to follow to have a nutritious meal. And it makes sense. And you don't get lost in the latest study that showed this one nutrient is the answer or is the problem it's 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 taking a big picture view a perspective that someone like Dr. Katz who's been studying nutrition writing textbooks on nutrition for his entire career can provide to you so when you go to these meetings and you are a member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine you can have conversations with these luminaries with these pioneers in fact It is how I got to know and become friends with Dean Ornish. Now, I I never would bump into Dean Ornish. First of all, he's in California. I'm here in Boston, number one. Number two, he's super busy and has a life of his own. And I just wouldn't, (laughs) we, we wouldn't connect, right? I have been admiring his work since my dad's heart attack and stroke, following his research, his career. And I will admit to you that my first meeting At the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, I I knew that there would be these pioneers there. I didn't know how it went in terms of being able to interact with them and ask them questions. Mm -hmm. But I was standing with a colleague in front of the elevator and I looked out of the corner of my eye and there was Dean Ornish going to the elevator. And I said to my colleague, is that Dean Ornish? That's Dean Ornish. Yes. Yes. And I said, Oh, I'm going to go. And my friend said, Oh no, no, no. I don't, I don't think, you know, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't go over. Don't, don't do anything. I said, no, <laughs> I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> I literally, I mean, I went from Boston to Nashville for this meeting. It's a, it, it, this is, this is why you go to these meetings. Right? It's this uh-huh. chance to actually interact with these people. So I ran over to the, um, Elevator, of course, stop short, you know, a, f- a few steps before the the elevator and, and push the button just very kind of casually. And then just the two of us get in the elevator. Oh, oh, Dean Ornish. Oh, my.
0: <laughs> like, you
1: know, seen him before. Oh, 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 I'm Beth Frady's and... My dad had a heart attack and stroke, and you were the main reason I went, even went into medicine and your research. And and we're going up, you know, twenty floors uh, into this hotel. We have I literally have my elevator pitch, which I never prepared or even thought about honestly before. But I, just yeah. – me, explaining my my story and and how I was happy to be here in Life Summers. and literally. That's how we became friends, and I'm I'm so happy to say that he he wrote the forward for of uh, the the handbook, and we are and and now we are colleagues. Um, and so, when you go to these meetings. You have this opportunity to speak to the pioneers and they're there to speak to you. They don't hide off somewhere. They're, they're in the mix of the meeting and they want to answer your questions. They want to connect with residents. And we have a trainees group, the ACLM trainee group, which where residents and medical students come together, they work together on different projects And it's, it's fun because it's not just your college, your medical school, it's a number of medical schools or health professional schools throughout the country. Our group at Harvard, I I just want to share because I think it's really fun and exciting and other groups have done this too. And you learn from the other groups when you're part of this American College of Lifestyle Medicine, they are. They are uh, hosting a 5K, a virtual 5K. So the Lifestyle Medicine Interest Group, which are medical students interested in lifestyle medicine, and they come together. They they meet about four times uh, a quarter, and they'll go over exercise, nutrition, sleep. Have lectures, but they'll also do th- do fun activities together. This one is hosting a 5K, virtual 5K, four. The Revere Food Bank for Mass General Hospital, it's the only food bank that is whole food plant based. So it's going to be unprocessed food for these uh, people in need of food. It's going to be wholesome, healthy food that they'll be able to get. So I'm the faculty for this group, uh, Lifestyle Medicine Interest Group at, at Harvard. And I'm just delighted that the students have put this together and for this cause the the only food pantry here in Boston the MGH Revere one that is providing such high quality food for the food bank <laughs>
0: I don't know if you're aware, but we also have a lot of content going alongside each episode over on our Instagram page. So if you aren't already following us there, make sure to go do so at PreventPod. We have a lot of content relating to each episode, including waveforms, different quotes that you can share with your friends and help us spread the message of preventive medicine. And with that, let's get back to the show that is absolutely incredible for the uh whole foods kind of um food bank. Um that's something I actually have not heard of before. And typically when you think of food banks it's just like getting as much food as you can. Um and it would definitely make sense to bring more whole foods to it. So that's absolutely incredible where you can give people not only just food but also better food um instead of some of like the processed like pie sometime that might come out. So That's incredible. Um, One of the other reservations that I want to ask you about is that when it comes to nutrition, physicians aren't necessarily um, the most reputable. Um, When you look on Twitter right now, uh, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of these posts, it's like, on one side, you have physicians who are incredibly evidence-based when it comes to nutrition, who are up to date, um, who have like best friends or registered dietitians, and they know everything. And then you have the other side where you have a bunch of physicians who don't seem to know anything about nutrition but have a very strong opinion. And they're like, you have to do this to get healthy. Carbohydrates are absolutely terrible for you. You should never eat them. Um, you should only eat like fats. Um, there's kind of like that massive bridge there. And a lot of people out there don't necessarily trust physicians for nutritional advice or just lifestyle advice because we're there, we're quote unquote, pill pushers, right? That's kind of one of the... Uh, Labels that might be given to physicians these days. So how do you kind of bridge that gap where you keep uh, physicians evidence-based? I know seeing on Twitter, there's a bunch of physicians that aren't who might even be part of the College of Lifestyle Medicine. So how do you kind of bridge that gap and keep everyone on the evidence-based path and not give physicians the name of not knowing nutrition at all?
1: Good point. And yes, because someone is in the American College of Lifestyle Medicine or because they have been... Given an award or something from the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, it, it doesn't mean that everything they say currently is backed by the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. When something is from the College ACLM American College of Lifestyle and you'll know because it'll come out from their Twitter feed or from their press or from their website. So otherwise, we can't take a member's opinions. Or tweets as representative of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. that's a really important point. I'm glad you brought it up. What do we do? Well, this is why I enjoy the American College of Lifestyle Medicine so much, because I have a lot of good friends that are nutrition specialists, registered dietitians. Uh, I have uh, physical therapists. I have personal trainers, all from American College of Lifestyle Medicine. They have become good friends because of these meetings that I go to. And I'm able to connect with people who spend their lives in the field of nutrition, right? Nutrition specialists, registered dietitians, dietitians. That is their wheelhouse. And they spend a lot of time researching, counseling, and they, they have that expertise. The beautiful thing about lifestyle medicine is it is team oriented, just like, you know, with physiatry, physical medicine, mm. rehab, it is a team approach. This is why it was so natural for me to like this approach. We, I've written papers and, and people talk a lot about what is the lifestyle medicine team? A, uh, a physician, a nutritionist, a exercise specialist, um, social worker, coach, nurse, a team approach where you can use people's expertise out of nu- from nutrition to help you with the latest data. So that's the first thing I'd say, is that in lifestyle medicine, we embrace nutritionists, physical therapists, exercise specialists, personal trainers. If you have information that's evidence-based research, so, so you've used research, and you can share with us best practices. Terrific! We want to learn and grow. Yes, there will there will be people that are opinionated, and they're going to be everywhere in the world, right? I've I've known about these people even before I went into medicine. There are opinionated people. And what do we do? Well, just as you're doing, if it's on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or wherever it may be, you look at the data, you look at the facts that they're putting forward. First about data, you see if they're being funded by anyone or uh, is their research being funded? Are are they on the board of different uh, companies? So it's mm. important to know if there's any kind of conflict of interest when, when definitely are speaking. Right. So that's one, two, what is their research? Uh, and what I do, uh, if you're asking uh, on <laughs> these social media platforms is I, I listen to the various people that are sharing and it's an open platform for sharing but I am, and I'm not one to jump quickly and, and start, hear something and say, Oh, that's it. That's the truth. I'm a, I'm a deep dive person, always have been really, even since high school. So I would recommend, and this is what I always tell my students in lifestyle medicine, be curious. So you hear something, it sounds interesting. Now you, now you dig into it. Now you go into PubMed. Your 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 listeners may know this, right? P U B M E D, PubMed. It's a it's an open website where you can search, for example, um, nutrition and, and stroke. You just put it into the PubMed search and you will find articles that have been published in on this topic. And then you can evaluate the research and what the latest findings show and you can come up with your own conclusion. So I think it's important for everyone, people that are practicing in the healthcare field and those that are seeking to improve their own health and wellness that you listen and you, you hear what others have to say, but then you always realize you have to make up your own mind And so the only way you can do that is gathering more information. So looking at the original data is often the answer for me. When I hear something, the latest study showed this. I want to dive into it. How many subjects? What kind of study was it? What were the confounding factors, if anything? What were the limitations of the study? There are people like my friend, David Katz. There's something called the True Health Initiative. Do you know it? the True Health Initiative?
0: I do not, know.
1: Okay, so this is something interesting. You may want to think about it and even research it, True Health Initiative, where Dr. Katz, as I mentioned, he he reviews all the different diets. Well, he is also friends and and brings in all the different minds in nutrition. And he's created this true health initiative where all the, it might be a hundred or more, practicing healthcare providers who have a focus in on nutrition are on the platform and they will, the true health initiative platform, and they will share their views on research that comes out And it is it's nice to have a variety of views and then you make your own decision. Does that help you?
0: Got it. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, arming people with knowledge is at the end of the day going to be the best thing that we can do as physicians because my personal views on this uh, is that physicians are teachers. We're people who are supposed to give information um, to others and let them kind of decide how they want to use that information integrate into our lives. But it's uh, at the end of the day, obviously, a responsibility to give um, very well uh, vetted information that we know is not going to cause any harm. So, um There's definitely a little bit of like, where's this information coming from? As you were talking about, like, look at the funding, critically evaluate studies. And that's something that we would, at the end of the day, like everyone to understand of how to do that. And that's one of the skills that we'd love to maybe have on a future episode. So thank you for that idea. That's actually excellent. Um, So I want to shift gears a little bit. I know you talked a little bit about um, what your practice kind of might be. You hinted at it. So I want to ask you, um, shifting away from the American college aspect, going more to you. It's kind of um, on your website, you have some wellness coaching on there, if I'm correct. And um, I just want to kind of ask you, what is your approach when you're kind of helping someone improve their lifestyle?
1: Yes, I love this question. And it paybacks really nicely with what you just said. So as healthcare providers of all kinds, all of us, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, physical therapists, dietitians, nutrition specialists, personal trainers. We have expertise. We have knowledge. And part of our duty is to share that knowledge. Absolutely. And helping people think critically is important. Okay. In lifestyle medicine and coaching. So when we are working with people one-on-one or in groups, so we're actually, our goal now is to help people make a move from an unhealthy habit to a healthy one. That's a little different than just supplying knowledge. I actually did think back in residency in 99, knowledge is power. And if I could just give everyone the knowledge, so get that book out, how to prevent a second stroke, get that book published and get it out and, and, and give it to anyone I could possibly give it to would be the answer. Give the information out. So I actually did that right. I published a book and I was giving it, I was talking at, at any library that would have me and trying to give all the information out about stroke prevention that I possibly could. And I, and I even gave it to friends, you know, my age, I was a, mm-hmm. a, a new mom uh, at the time. So I don't remember, you know, maybe I'm, maybe at the time I was, you know, in my thirties or so, and I'm giving it to my friends and one of my friends, <laughs> and I'll never forget. it. it was just so poignant. I, I, I gave her the book and uh, she looked at it. She's funny. She has a really, so just so you know, she has a great sense of humor. Just so say that she looked at it. So pretend this is the book. She looked at it and she went, hmm, this would be a great doorstop. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> But it is
0: one of the problems we have. Yeah.
1: Right. But I mean, in other words, this wasn't important to her. She didn't want to learn about stroke. It had nothing to do with her. So mm-hmm. this leads me to this coaching and coach approach. People need to be ready and willing to hear the information. Right. So if you know that Definitely. this radical model of change, Prochaska's, do you know this or no? I don't know if you nope. go this. Not yet. OK. In medical school, you may you may go over this. So there's different stages of change. Pre-contemplation. No, no way. No how. I'm never going to change. Never. I smoke. I'm never quitting. Pre-contemplation. Then there's contemplation. Hmm. I mean, I'm spending a lot of money on cigarettes, but I do love it. I'm not going to quit. Contemplation. Then there's preparation. I'm tired of this, and now my grandchild just said she wouldn't get in my car because it smells. I have to stop this, and so I've already talked to my physician, and I'm thinking that I might join one of the pro- the local programs. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pull that trigger. Preparation. Preparation is change, and then there's action. So I've quit. I'm in a program. I'm gonna stick with this, and then maintenance. So I, I haven't smoked a cigarette for, uh, you know, uh, a year or more. And I'm, I'm going to maintain this, by the way, this isn't me I, I, One, I don't have grandchildren and I've never smoked. I'm just, I I'm just, <laughs> uh, just in case somebody's listening to the podcast and they're going to report out, well, actually Beth Brady's has grandchildren um, <laughs> and she just recently quit smoking. So no, that was not me, but that was many, many patients. So that's the, you know, the, so there's a transtertical model of change as lifestyle medicine practitioners it be, be, be if you're a coach if you're a dietitian if you're a physician nurse what as lifestyle medicine practitioners we do need to use a coach approach meaning assess the person listen to the person so instead before i did coaching and lifestyle medicine, and I was trying to help people with stroke, I literally would just kind of get up in their face and and, and do the finger wag and, and start telling them what they needed to do and how they needed to do it. And maybe some were listening, probably a lot were not, but I didn't know the difference. So now I'm learning the difference. I've learned the difference. I'm, I'm continuing to learn, lifelong learner. So I'm, I'm always open to learning more. <laughs> we ask someone how do you feel about your smoking how do you feel about your your eating how do you feel about your your what you're consuming day today before i launch into what i think they need to do <laughs> what how do you feel about it how's it going for you then i hear and i see where they are in the stage of change and then the next key piece is motivation. I have motivation, my personal motivation and motivators for people to change, prevent a stroke, prevent a heart attack, lo- lower your diabetes risk, get off diabetes medication, uh, lower your blood pressure, decrease inflammation in your body. I have a ton of motivators <laughs> that I could, mm-hmm. I could, I, I could apply to pretty much anyone. Mm -hmm. Those are my motivators for them to change. What are their motivators to change? So that's what I learned in coaching, motivational interviewing training. I've done since 2008, multiple different programs. At any rate, what speaks to them? Why are you thinking of changing? Why are you thinking of adding vegetables to your diet? What, what makes you think? What, what makes you ask me about that? Well, my mom has diabetes. And now they're saying they're going to have to amputate her leg. And I've been thinking we don't ever eat a lot of green. And people are saying green and kale. and And I think I should probably start paying attention. Okay. So now I know she's worried about her family history. She's worried about following in the footsteps of her mom. She's motivated because she doesn't want to get diabetes. So now I've learned a lot just right there. Versus say another patient who came to me and said, I want to lose 30 pounds. That's a a goal a lot of people have. Now I can launch into, okay, do this, 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 and this. It may help. Mm -hmm. And they may, like a lot of people, follow this pattern or plan, whatever I tell them. For four weeks and then what happens? Then it usually goes back to the old way. So instead of doing that with them, because that's not what we do in lifestyle medicine, you want to lose 30 pounds. Tell me about that. Again, the first thing in coaching is listening. Tell me about that. So for this particular woman, it was, well, I'm going to meet a good friend from high school and we're going to Florida and she's on a shake diet and she's already lost 15 pounds and I want to lose weight too. And I want to wear a bathing suit. This is, this is what she's told me. I'm not here to judge anyone's motivators, by the way. I'm not here to judge. I I hope not to judge. I hope not to judge Mm -hmm. people really. And I'm not going to judge someone's motivators. I am going to make a mental note. This is an external motivator. This is a motivator coming from outside. I want to see what kind of internal motivator I can get from this patient later. But right now I'm going to work with this external motivator. Well, how do you plan on doing that? Well, I think I should do that shake diet like my friend. What do you know about shake diets? Well, I've tried them. The problem is I do it and then I lose a ton of weight, but then I, I rebound back. Hmm. This doesn't sound like it's worked for you in the past. No, it really hasn't. Hmm do you want to try a different way? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about what you currently eat. right? And so then it gets to, instead of me saying, uh, telling them exactly what to do, I I examine what they've done in the past, what their views are on it. I know what's healthy. And what I'll say is I'll ask questions like, how many vegetables are you eating each day? She'll answer- you know, tell me about your last 24 hours and what you ate throughout the day. And, you know, people know, they tell you and they say, well, that sleeve of Girl Scout cookies, I probably shouldn't have had it. But, you know, (laughs) I was really hungry and I was stressed and I ate it. I mean, they they can almost counsel themselves about it, but they they don't. So as the coach, you get to that. Where are they in change? You get to the motivator and then you get to building their confidence that they can do this build their confidence that they, this will not be another, I'm going on a fad diet, I'm going to lose 20 pounds and then I'm going to gain 25. So how are we going to do this differently? And how can you do this with confidence? And then you set little goals that are specific to them. They're not something you can read out of a book. It's specific to them and their situation, like this particular patient did have a lot of Girl Scout cookies (laughs) still in her house, (laughs) you know, for her, the goal would be, well, what are you going to do with those Girl Scout cookies? (laughs) Whereas somebody else who doesn't have Girl Scout cookies and sitting in their house, that may not be a goal for the week to to manage the Girl Scout cookie uh, uh, consumption. And then you go to setting accountability so that they know someone cares. You're going to check in on them and check in on that goal. And it's, it's a whole methodology of collaborating, really connecting with the person in front of you, their motivators, their past, their desires, their vision of themselves in the future, and get, getting them to, to make small steps forward. And by the way, when someone wants to lose weight, for me and for lifestyle medicine practitioners of all kinds, it's not just about the diet, although that's key, but you know, getting into stress, how they manage stress, how they're sleeping. Because sleep, it's all related. When you're sleep deprived, research shows us you you will actually consume more calories. There's research where subjects Mm -hmm. only had five hours and subjects had nine hours. And then how many calories did they eat the next day? Well, those that had less sleep ate more calories. And what were they consuming? They were consuming the- the, the,
0: Usually not the good stuff.
1: That's right. (laughs) So- (laughs) So coaching for me is almost the secret sauce of, of lifestyle medicine. So you know the guidelines. And like you said, we have specialists. They live their lives. Like Walt Willett, who's here at Harvard. And he was part of the Eat Lancet Global group that got together what's healthy for people, what's healthy for the planet. And they put together Eat Lancet, L-A-N-C-E-T, if you're interested at any rate. His whole life is nutrition. He was head of the nutrition department at Harvard School of Public Health. So you have people with expertise and Pulled all that expertise together, great. And now we have the knowledge as practitioners, but now here's the thing, like you said, it's not just sharing all the knowledge, it's connecting and collaborating with the patient in front of you, understanding their desires, their obstacles, their motivators, brainstorming ways around the obstacles with them, creating concrete, small goals that they can hit each week to get to that big goal. To get to that that vision that they have of themselves, usually it's as a as a, a healthy, agile, flexible in mind and body person who's who's going through life with a sense of vitality and thriving. That's what a lot of people are looking for.
0: Definitely, there's so much value in what you just said. There's a lot to unpack there, but I think the most important thing, if I could boil it all down, is that um, when you're coaching, it's not just your goals for this person. You are flexible to their goals and you're really meeting them and that's really what it's there for. And uh, I think in the week before this episode that we're releasing, we talked about goal-directed um, training. Um, we had a personal trainer on and I think it's the exact same thing with any wellness coaching, health, even as physicians if we're doing like something medicine wise where we need to worry about their goals and exactly what the motivations are, where they are in that trans-theoretical model. Turns out I did not, just, that name didn't ring a at that point. Um, but where they are kind of acknowledged that and work with them to reach whatever point they are and really understand the why of why they're trying to do this and really use that why. Because at that point, that's their buy-in. The why is the buy-in and really leverage that and find ways to work around that to get to their goals. So once again, lots to unpack. I'm not trying to put any words in your mouth, but that's the biggest part that I got out of that.
1: That's a great summary. Excellent.
0: Yeah. So now I want to ask you, we're, uh, closing in on close to an hour. Um, so before we end this podcast, I want to ask you, we got two questions left. Um, one of those is when you are coaching someone, um, it is, what is, what are the highest impact things that you kind of address? Like, like right away? Like I know one of those is obviously most likely going to be sleep, but so what are some of the, uh, higher impact things that you go for?
1: Yes. And, this question comes up every single time. And this is even when I'm doing Harvard CME, continuing medical education courses for, for physicians. The end of the talk comes and the questions start, what should I do first? All mm-hmm. times, it's personal, but sometimes what should the patient do first? What should I do first? <laughs> You might be able to figure out what I'm going to say, given what we just talked about with with coaching, but it's very, very true and very important. You need to find out who's in front of you. It's all about who's in front of me and what they need most. For some, yes, it will be sleep. Absolutely. And if they have sleep apnea obstructive sleep apnea, it's going to be getting CPAP, to be honest. That's going to be one of the very first things we can do, and then we work on losing weight and through a diet and through exercise and mindset. But its its it really depends on the person in front of you. Yes, I, I'm going to examine exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress resiliency, social connections. For some people, there's a saboteur in the house. That's bringing in ice cream left and right. They just like a bite of it. They, they don't, they don't have this eat the whole half gallon thing. That so many, people <laughs> <laughs> that so many people. They just have this, Oh, I'm just going to have a little, just going to have a little scoop and they're bringing it in. And the person I'm seeing is eating it. And so, so what's one of the most important things? We'll figure out what's going on with that dynamic. Why what's going on there? Um, so it it's gonna be one of these six pillars we talked about that, that we'll focus in on, but it can it it can be deceiving. I have had people come to me and say they want to eat healthier. I want to eat more vegetables. That's what they come to me saying that's great. I love it. terrific. Let's work together. Week three, it comes out. So what would you think of someone was having a bottle of wine? Well, I mean, from 4 PM until midnight. So I mean, over a long time, but a bottle of wine a night, what would you think about that? So there's the real, there's, so there's the real issue, right? That's that, 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 that's, that, that would be number one. That would be number one in that case, but it didn't come to me as number one. It came to me in a, in a, in a package, that was deceiving. and Definitely. And, and the, the thing about coaching versus the expert approach I used to take, in the expert approach, I would have just listed out ways for this person to eat more vegetables. I would have just maybe even given them a schedule, maybe even gone to the store with them. They were local to me and we would have shopped together. Maybe we would have then worked on cooking and we would have prepared together. But if I didn't spend all the time I did with this person, because I walk with my patients, that's how I do my visits. Not not now with mm. COVID, but anyway, b- before COVID, I would walk with everyone. That's what that's how I did my 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 um, sessions. And if I didn't walk with her for two full hours, two full sessions, they're an hour each, and just listen to her. Most of the time, I was listening, ask question, listen in the beginning, ask question, listen, get to know who's in front of me. Take it in, take it in. And if she didn't know and feel confident that when she said that I wasn't going to judge her, I was just going to try to help her, then we would be feeding her lots of vegetables and she'd be drinking lots of wine and, and she wouldn't be in no better position.
0: All right. So we have a lot of complex topics that we've talked about. Obviously, coaching is very dynamic. However, now we're going to take a super reductionist approach. We like to end every single podcast with this. And that's, let's say you're getting coffee at Starbucks and uh, someone recognizes you. Hey, Dr. Frady's, I see you from Twitter. I know you, blah, blah, blah. How do I get healthy? What do you tell them in the two minutes you're waiting for your coffee?
1: This is the elevator pitch. I'm in the elevator. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Terrific. So the first thing I would say is I would ask the coach in me, I would ask them what's going well in their lifestyle right now and what's holding them up. What do they think is holding them up? And depending on what they said to me, if they said that, again, if it were alcohol, if it were stress, whichever part, whichever pillar they told me was bothering them, I would give them probably two to three tips on that. I would say here's two or three tips. Uh, but what we really need is a coaching session to try to see if we can set some smart goals for you and get you going to the vision of yourself.
0: Got it. Perfect. That was very short to succinct. Definitely within two minutes. Well, we're up at the end of this podcast. We want to thank you for your time. We're extremely grateful for uh, just coming on this podcast. Um, is there anything you want to say at the end of this? Anything like, you want to plug, whatnot?
1: No, I don't have anything to plug. Thank you so much for having (laughs) me. It was a joy and I hope it was helpful.
0: Definitely. And if you want to find more of her content, then you can find Dr. Frady's social medias all over the show notes and wherever we'll have all of our links. So uh, please don't hesitate to do so. Once again, thank you for coming on the show. And um, yeah, thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.